This is Fergus Hodgson, and this is the Impunity Observer podcast for our second episode. What an honor it is to do this show and to have an old friend and a man I admire and, and learn from, Marco Navarro Geni. He is the author of a biography of, of uh, Augusto Sandino, and he is the founder and president of the Holtain Research Institute, which is holtainresearch.org. Also a contributor or a writer with the Frontier Center for Public Policy and the Western Standard, a great outlet up in, uh, the Prairie, in Prairie Canada. And he was previously the president of the Atlantic Institute for Market Studies, another think tank in Canada. So this man will address today, he's also a, a, an exile from Nicaragua. So he will address what is going on in Nicaragua for all outsiders. And I could not imagine a better man to do it. So Marco, welcome. And what is happening with, we have an election coming up in November, Nicaragua. Can we even call it an election? Um, thank you for having me here, Fergus. I, I appreciate it. Um, yes, uh, the, uh, the upcoming election in Nicaragua uh, on the 7th of November makes it a tragic, tragic, tragic event, uh, where it not for the tragedy, it would be actually laughable. Nicaraguans are joking around that uh, um, the point of having an election is no point at all. Everybody already knows uh, who's going to win the election. How, how do we know that uh, everybody knows that uh, we're going to win the election? Because the current president and his wife, who is the vice president, uh, if you can imagine that, that travesty, uh, have gone around since June and rounded up every possible credible challenger uh, to, to, to the electoral process. And they have jailed them. Uh, they have accused them of treason uh, and they have accused them of all kinds of crimes, money laundering and all kinds of trumped up charges to essentially take them out of the competition. And they're still gonna have an election. So it's an election that essentially has no opponents at all. Yeah, not only no opponents, but at the Opinion Observer, we did a memo recently about even the crony capitalist class, the long-term, let's say, ally, had allies, I can't remember their name right now, but the, the Chamber of Commerce that had basically been lenient or a friend of the Ortega regime, they have been given the heave-ho. Have you followed that? Yes, uh, it's called COSEP, and uh, they were, by and large, uh, radically emasculated uh, politically quite a while ago uh, and, and became essentially collaborators of the regime in the sense that uh, they didn't much care about the constitutional framework as long as they continued to make money. This is not new. Uh, the, uh, the commercial class in Nicaragua and the industrial class in Nicaragua has always been rather servile to the political power. This was true. Uh, back in the uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s during the Somoza regime, uh, and it is uh, true still. Yeah, and before we began recording, I mentioned that there's a great deal of sensitivity in the United States about border the uh, border crisis, and people talk about the Haitians coming in, and not just Haitians, but a lot of different people. And are we going to see a mass exodus like we have observed from Venezuela? We already started seeing it. Um, back in uh, 2008, uh, there was, uh, in the spring of 2008, a, a popular uprising uh, in, in Nicaragua, nonviolent. Uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people poured onto the streets to protest the regime. And uh, for the first three, four, five days, uh, the police disappeared. 
the regime was in total shock. Uh, but eventually they kind of woke up and unleashed a massive wave of repression that killed uh, over 300 people. And, uh, and, and that began what, what I would call a second generation uh, of exiles. I, I would consider myself the first generation back in the, back in the 80s. Uh, and uh, between then and now, uh, about 110,000 Nicaraguans have left the country. Uh, doesn't sound like much, but it is close to 2% of the population. So imagine 2% of the American population leaving uh, the country for political reasons. In Canada, for example, 2% uh, of the population is about 750,000 people. That's the equivalent of the entire city of Edmonton, just totally vanished. Every single person in Edmonton gone. Imagine that. So uh, to come back to your question, when the regime recrowns itself after the elections of November, uh, I suspect that they have kind of been playing nice somewhat but because there is an election coming. They, they simply jailed uh, the opponents. What's going to happen after, once they are completely emboldened by the fact that they have uh, essentially won the elections again, only Lord can tell. And that means that uh, the wave of repression may uh, heighten. Uh, that means that the waves of Nicaraguans being persecuted uh, will increase, and that will only increase the number of people uh, leaving the country. If the number of people leaving the country keeps up, that will destabilize uh, the fragile situations in the neighboring countries like Honduras, El Salvador, and Costa Rica, much in the same way that this, one, that this was done in the 80s. Let's remember that uh, the Nicaraguan revolution destabilized the region uh, for more than a decade between 1979 and 1990. So we could have greater waves of Central Americans essentially leaving, spilling out of their borders, coming into Mexico, uh, and eventually coming uh, and finding themselves uh, at the edge of the Rio Grande. Yeah, and you mentioned the way that 100 or 200,000 people might not seem like, a, like many to people, Americans or Canadians, but Nicaragua has, I think, four, between four and five million people, and that population has remained stable for, for a few decades, largely because the economy has been so unpalatable. And Nicaragua has received such little interest. Is that going to change where it's going to suddenly be on the news radar? I, mean, I hate to say it, but here in the United States, you just never hear about the country. I, I hate to put it in these terms because, of course, it is my country of birth, but uh, Nicaragua is kind of a backwater. And uh, back in the 80s, uh, the great interest of the left was not, I'm convinced now, not an interest in the well-being of the people of Nicaragua. The, the, the interest of the left in Nicaragua was a way to participate in the Cold War uh, as almost agents of the Cold War in promoting the advance of the left in the region. What journalists in Europe, in North America, don't want to cover Nicaragua anymore because it reminds them that they were completely wrong back in the 80s. Uh, remember that uh, Ortega has now become not just like the regime that they uh, overthrew, but worse uh, than the Somozas. And so the people who backed them, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the left-leaning uh, parties, uh, want nothing to do with it. Uh, it's worse than that. I mean, but let's not forget that Ortega has been accused of uh, raping his own daughter. I mean, the kind of stuff that, that oozes out of uh, the presidency in Nicaragua it's beyond the pale. Uh, and so no one who ever supported the Sandinistas back in the late 70s and early 80s uh, wants to admit today 
uh, that, that it was so. Yeah, there are lots of icky elements to this regime, and that is one of them, where the allegations are credible and have been around a while, and no one wants to talk about it, really. American feminist Margaret Randall has, uh, uh, has already published and said that, that the allegations are true, that everyone knew, and they just looked away. Yeah, and there's another story which, now, I should mention that Marco has a PhD in political science from the University of Calgary, and he has been focused on Central American history. And there's another story that got overlooked. After the revolution in 79, there were these, yeah, as you say, Nicaragua was a bit of a backwater, and so some of the, the more remote regions weren't really, let's say, participating in, the, in their country so much. And these were the Mosquito Indians. And they were, I guess, part of the people caught up in that destabilization. So when they didn't want to be involved in the regime, a lot of them fled to Honduras. What exactly happened to those people? Many of them have, uh, have returned. Um, when the Sandinistas regained, uh, when, when the Sandinistas lost power in 1990, 1991, the, uh, Mrs., the government of Mrs. Chamorro made great efforts with the help of the European community and the United Nations to, repat to repatriate a great deal of the exiles. Uh, and uh, so many of them came, uh, but their leadership was decimated. The Sandinistas started a, a, a very targeted wave of assassinations of former Contras uh, and former leaders of the opposition against them. So that by the time they took power again uh, in, the, uh, in, in 2017, uh, a great deal of those leaders had been, had been essentially uh, killed. Uh, the, the plight of the Mosquito Indians is, is another one of those stories that, that does not fit the narrative of the, of the left and, uh, and the atrocities committed there by the Sandinistas uh, remain, by and large, undocumented. Yeah, there is a, a short film about it, which I found, which is, is hard to find. I'll have to put that in the show notes. And I can't remember, an American filmmaker went down there back in, I think, the early 80s and tried to just follow what was going on with that, that, that group of people or ethnic uh, group. And so just for people who maybe are new to the topic, the Contras, and you know this much better than I do, Marco, but were people who tried to reclaim the country uh, from the Ortega regime back in the 80s under Ronald Reagan. And why was that unsuccessful? It, it was not unsuccessful. Uh, there's a couple of myths about the Contras. Uh, and one is, one of the greatest myths about the Contras is that the Contras were started by the United States, that they were the creation uh, of Ronald Reagan. It is now, it is now been established that uh, the first people who founded the Contras were before, uh, they took to the hills, before the Sandinistas actually won uh, revolution in 1979. Uh, what took place was exactly, what happened was that uh, many of the peasants who were helping the Sandinistas in the hills uh, before they overthrew the, the uh, U.S.-backed government began retreating in their, in their support for the Sandinistas when the Sandinistas started confiscating their weapons. And these, these were small landed peasants uh, who had helped them, who had harbored them, who had cared for them. And all of a sudden, when the Sandinistas established control over these areas, they, they started to disarm them. Uh, and they refused to turn their weapons in and took over, took off to the hills and started fighting the guerrillas before the guerrillas became the government. That is the origin of the, of the Contras. That said, uh, the Contras were largely successful, I think, because they brought the Sandinistas uh, to, the peace, uh, to the peace table uh, and eventually uh, their pressure 
led to their electoral defeat uh, in, in 1990 and the ushering of Mrs. Chamorro as, uh, as a democratic government. So they, they got a lot of bad play. There were a lot of bad things committed on both sides, considering that it was a war and the worst wars are civil wars, let's just face it. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but I think that they were largely successful in the sense that uh, they brought some misses to the table and, and eventually peace ensued. Yeah. And there's people must wonder, it's, it's a very odd story how this man who led a Soviet-backed re- revolution somehow got back into power. And this, there's a very strange story of how he did that with only a minority of the electorate. I guess you could say the same thing about Canada. <laughs> but, <laughs> but so this man got back into power with, I think, about 30% of the vote. And were there shenanigans? I think it was 2007 when Ortega got back into power. Uh, Ortega became uh, the president in 2000 and. Uh... Uh, in seven, as a result of what is in Nicaragua is known as the Pact, uh, which uh, essentially was a uh, a treaty between the uh, Liberal Party uh, and the Sandinistas uh, to create a two-party system that would give them a kind of control of uh, the the political spectrum uh, on the, on the right and on the left. Uh, so they they modify the constitution. Uh, to nearly ban all the, the, the other political parties. Uh, and they set one against the other, having worked out a deal that they will alternate power. Yeah, almost like a power sharing agreement, yeah. yeah yes, and when the Sandinistas took over, uh, in, uh, when, when their turn uh, came to share in that arrangement, uh, they turned against uh, their partners, uh, accused uh, the former president uh, of all kinds of, all kinds of things, which apparently were true, but they already knew. They defrauded him of, of his immunity, uh, threw him in jail, crushed uh, their former partners, and essentially uh, crowned themselves pretty much the only game in town. Yeah. And one of the challenges with the situation now, as you say, it, it seems like, I don't know, what can you do with this situation? It's in that the situation is so out of hand that what can be done? And I must admit, in my earlier days, I was much more of a non-interventionist. And maybe I'm losing losing that, that idealism. But what can be done from the perspective of, of more liberal or classical liberal countries towards these just sinister, I call them neo-feudalistic nations that are just clinging to this almost peasant ruling class way of life? That is the... $64,000 question. We know a couple of things, that uh, the civil war in Nicaragua that raged for over a decade was absolutely brutal. And uh, everyone in Nicaragua still alive today has a relative distant or indirect who perished during the war. And families uh, were completely torn from on one side and on the other of the civil war. So there is no appetite for armed rebellion in Nicaragua. The Sanistas know this well and are taking advantage of it. There is very little appetite for a, a military intervention, therefore, uh, in the kind of war that uh, the Contra war uh, resulted in. So this is a mess, I would argue, that is largely self-inflicted, uh, that Nicaraguans have done this to themselves by allowing the Ortega family to take over 
especially after the war and after the experience with the Somozas, and let them dismantle the fragile democracy that they had built during the 80s. And so it's for them to fix this mess. And uh, it is terrible that other people are going to be destabilized. I think the international community has already begun a series of sanctions against this, the, uh, the Ortega family and the Sandinista party. I think that needs to continue and that pressure needs to continue. Uh, but beyond that and beyond isolating them, uh, which I think we'll have to do, I would urge the international community not to recognize uh, the results of the so-called election that is about to take place in November and, and to apply pressure. But besides that, I'm not sure that there is much that the international community can and should do. Mm, interesting. And, and one thing that always has perplexed me about these parties that are named after a certain individual is the way that, of course, they don't necessarily live up to, the, to that individual's name. So, of course, Sandinista refers to Sandino, Augusto Sandino. And was it Cesar? Was, it, was that the name he went by? Yeah, Augusto Cesar. Yeah. And should Nicaraguans just I know this is this is where I want to get into into your book, which I did read, and I and w- which is a discussion more of yes, his life, but his intellectual journey. Tell us, do Nicaraguans still have an affection for this man, and is it an unhealthy thing? Maybe because I don't know whether he would agree with what's going on these days. I mean, who knows? To be frank, but why don't you comment on his legacy within Nicaraguan culture? and how that does or does not relate to what's going on now. Augusto Sandino was a thug. He was a bandit, a killer, enormous delusions of grandeur. He believed that he was an incarnation of Christ uh, and that he was a a messiah that had been sent uh, to redeem not just Nicaragua, but the entire world. So the image of Sandino that Nicaraguans have is completely contrived. It's a narrative that was built by the communists who co-opted his image to say that he had been this great sovereignty uh, upholding liberator of the of the country. And so the image that Nicaraguans have of who Sandino was uh, is completely made up and completely fabricated. Uh, the extent to which they don't see the connection between the appalling man that he was and the president that they have now. Instead, what they say is that uh, Ortega and his family have departed from uh, the liberating aspect of the Sandinista message. And so they exonerate Sandino uh, now to condemn the Ortegas, where in reality, there is a straight, direct straight line uh, between the kind of thuggery that Sandino unleashed on Nicaragua for uh, seven or eight years in the 1920s and 30s and what the Ortegas are doing today. One thing... Yeah, so Sandino, my understanding was that he actually wanted some sort of more unified Latin American state, almost like a European Union. Is that correct? So he wasn't so much of a Nicaraguan sovereigntist or nationalist, but more of a Latin American nationalist. Yes, that that is absolutely correct. Uh, Sandino, for example, was in favor of opening a a canal uh, in Nicaragua. I I got into a Twitter spat with, with Bianca Jagger, of all people. Uh, a few years ago, because she claimed that Sandino would have been against the opening of the canal that the Chinese wanted to build in Nicaragua. And in fact, it, it, it is the opposite. Sandino went from being the, the little thuggish figure in the mountains in Nicaragua to the 
enormous delusions that he was uh, going to redeem the Latin American race. And so it was much like his counterparts in the 1930s in Europe. Uh, it was an ideology based on the purity of the Latin American race. Uh, and Lord knows what that would have unleashed had he ever come to develop the fruits of his ideas uh, in, in Latin America. Uh, we've seen examples, uh, by the way, of that kind of ideology uh, in the Mexican Revolution in northern Mexico, uh, where uh, people like Pancho Villa, another thug, uh, went around and shot Americans, Yankees, he called them, and Chinese people on site just because they were uh, considered to be polluters of the Latin American race. Uh, I would suggest that uh, Sandino would have created very much that kind of origin. Yeah, and one thing, I was just chatting about this recently, this is probably a sensitive topic to some listeners, but there are realtors promoting opportunities in Nicaragua around on the coast. And if you go to uh, Granada, just uh, I think it's about two hours out of the capital, there are lots of expats there. And do you have any thoughts on whether that is a good idea? I mean, I know a lot of the Cuban exiles don't want, don't want anyone to go anywhere near the country, basically, for fear of economically propping up the regime. Do you take a similar position that people should just stay away from Nicaragua? I'm a free market guy. I, I think that people should be free uh, to make their own decisions about where they park uh, their money. I, I had a, a, an argument with a couple of my friends in Nicaragua who complained that uh, all these foreigners were buying all these uh, beautiful places. Actually, they were decrepit, dilapidated properties. And, <laughs> and, and, and then they were yeah. fixing them up uh, and they were restoring them to their near colonial uh, uh, looks and, and, and status. And Granada is now a beautiful, a beautiful place, a much more beautiful place than ever because of this uh, foreign investment. And so people were complaining that all these foreigners were coming and snatching up the property. What they were not complaining about is the fact that they were restoring these beautiful places uh, to you know, their former glory. So uh, I think it's a buyer beware. I, I, I can tell you that I would not invest a cent in Nicaragua today, uh, even though it's my, it's my country of birth. Uh, because there are no guarantees of private property uh, and, and, and the government or anyone uh, could dispossess you at the drop of a hat. You know, Mexicans until the 80s had a proscription against uh, foreigners owning uh, property that was beachfront uh, in, in Mexico. So that went on for, you know, 70 years or so. Uh, th there is no such proscription uh, in, in Nicaragua. Uh, people can go and buy you know, the market, the market is open. The issue really is the rule of law. Uh, there are no property guarantees. And so buyer beware. But, but I think that by and large, foreign investment is a good thing. Yeah, it is, a, it is a dilemma often. And with the Cuba scenario, my mentor on Cuba is Jose Zell and his book is Manana in Cuba. And he I guess the best case scenario in his mind is that someone, let's say in the Cuban military, will somehow have a bit of common sense and try to steer the ship towards market liberalization. And that's the, the, the best way out of this, rather than like you said, as some kind of invasion or more combative approach. Is there any hope for that, that someone actually within the regime itself has a bit more of an even keel and wants Nicaragua to develop? When people asked me a few years ago about uh, how would I describe Nicaragua 
and I would say that Nicaragua was being ruled by Latin America's Dong Xiaoping. Um, the, the Sandinistas, um, in, or Ortega in particular, followed the Chinese model. Uh, he opened up the economy uh, and tightened uh, the political uh, regime. And so Nicaragua is very much a small model of uh, Beijing. That said, what took place in 2018 totally destabilized the model and people want greater uh, democratic uh, horizons uh, and they want the, the Sandinistas gone. So the opening up of the market, uh, like the Chinese did, uh, was actually a pretty successful element uh, of the Nicaraguan regime. The last time I was in Nicaragua was just a year prior to the 2018 uh, rebellion. And uh, I, I traveled through Central America. Uh, I was in El Salvador, I was in Guatemala, and I was in, in Nicaragua. And uh, I had never seen better roads in Central America than the roads were in Nicaragua in 2017. You could go to remote places that you couldn't even go by horse uh, five years earlier. You could go to battlefields. I was interested in San Sandino battlefields. You could go to these absolutely remote places in perfectly good roads. Uh, there were buses and trucks moving produce to one end of the country, from one end of the country to another. Uh, it, it, was, it was rather a commercial success up to that point. And so the commercial model and the free trade model works if it accompanies uh, some kind of democratic regime. But the Chinese model is bankrupt and Nicaragua is proving it. So down, just clarify that by bankrupt, because a lot of us, this is a, a, a broad discussion that, that's gone on among many international relations observers, you might say, the observation that the CCP or the Chinese Communist Party has, yes, liberalized the economy to a certain degree, but hasn't really liberalized the political life. And you don't think that's sustainable? I think Nicaragua is proving that it is not. I mean, the Chinese regime has a much greater hold on China than you know the, the Sandinistas have on Nicaragua. But but that's the project in Nicaragua. Uh, in Nicaragua at the moment, the only independent institution that is not in Sandinista hands today is the Roman Catholic Church. Everything else has been either sidelined like. Uh, the industrial class uh, we talked about earlier, the courts, the electoral system uh, in the electoral courts, the assembly, every possible institution in the country is now co-opted by the Ortega family with the exception of the church. And just last week, uh, they went after the church and accused the, the uh, council of bishops of being traitors uh, to, to the country. So it's already starting. Yeah, man. Mark, when I, I, we've gone through the time really quickly, but I have so many more questions. One thing is that my understanding is that many of the Catholic Church priests back in the 70s were part of this liberation theology. Is that still a virus infecting Nicaragua's Catholic Church? There are some of them, but uh, they belong to the class of lefties that uh, we spoke about earlier uh, in Europe and in North America who enabled. Uh, this atrocious, atrocious regime uh, to thrive. And so they are now uh, not very vocal. Uh, and uh, and you, you don't see them, uh, you don't hear them at all. The new impetus of the church, in fact, and we saw, the, saw it in the 20, uh, 2018 uh, rebellion, uh, the bishops were out marching with the people. And uh, they, they led in many ways the uh, 
the assurance, they, they ensured uh, that the protest remained peaceful. Uh, and so uh, this, is, this is not uh, the, uh, the 1980s Catholic Church anymore. This is, a, this is a much different Catholic Church. One other important ingredient has been this Bolivarian alliance with Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, and until recently, Ecuador, and I think Dominican Republic, maybe, I'm not sure, a few of the Caribbean countries, they have basically worked together to economically, I don't know, prop each other up and use a bunch of Venezuelan oil revenues. As this has, I guess, without the oil revenues, since Venezuela is just such a basket case, is that going to have an impact? Is that going to reduce the cloud of the regime or its ability to be sustainable? It already has. I, I would argue that uh, the, the Nicaraguan regime, uh, such as it is today, uh, was able to rise largely uh, because of oil revenues from Venezuela. Uh, Nicaragua, uh, the Sandinistas, uh, the Ortega family precisely, and the Chavez family created a consortium in Nicaragua. And uh, this consortium would receive the petrol donated by the Venezuelan government. They would refine it and then sell it in the open market. And so it was basically free oil that they received from Venezuela. It was, it was oil that was essentially stolen from the people of Venezuela, given to this consortium, and then they shared in the profits. Um, the, the Sandinista family, the Ortega family, was able to buy nearly all of the uh, mainstream media uh, in Nicaragua with, with the money that came from Venezuela. So it, that money from Venezuela was crucial in installing them in power and cementing their authority. But that is now a challenge considering that Venezuela is a basket case, uh, the money has stopped rolling in the way that it was. And so the instability in Venezuela has rippled uh, into, into Nicaragua. Uh, so it was both a cause of the rise and is now uh, being in some, in some cases an effect on their demise. Yeah. Okay. So obviously what we want people to follow the impunity observer. We do cover Nicaragua because we really focus on positive relations between the Anglo-America or Canada, the United States and Central America or Latin America. And Nicaragua is an awkward piece of that puzzle and one of the most unstable places around at this time. So yeah, you can follow the impunity observer or impunityobserver.com. Aside from us, Marco, of course, who are the other journalists or media outlets that are still standing in this scenario that you would point people to? Um, the, the principal source of uh, analysis and, uh, and some semblance uh, of facts that comes out of Nicaragua uh, today uh, would be Carlos Fernando Chamorro, son of the former president of uh, Nicaragua and uh, a McGill uh, University-educated uh, journalist. If I trust anybody, he is, in fact, more or less the source of a great deal of uh, uh, the good stuff that comes out of Nicaragua and, and, uh, um, and a reliable source, I would say. On their tremendous persecution, by the way. Yeah. yeah. We'll include a link to his Twitter and I guess his website. Our editor will put that. It's just impunityobserver.com forward slash podcast. Also, do you want to give a quick plug for your book? And I know you wrote this maybe 15 years ago now the 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 biography but my sense is i mean it's a, it's a piece of history and it remains pertinent for anyone wanting, wanting to understand the the nicaraguan context 
And from mem from memory, you're considering a, a revision. What's what's the status of your book? The book has been now out for 20 years, and, uh, and believe it or not, uh, because there hasn't been a great deal of new done in very few, if any, new sources, uh, it remains as relevant uh, the argument as it, as it was then. Uh, it it connects what is going on today with Nicaraguan past and Nicaraguan past with what is going on today. What is going on today is not uh, is not an accident. Uh, there is a direct line of this kind uh, of, of uh, political abuse and a, and a desire for control, the servility of the of the uh, uh, industrial classes that I spoke uh, about, all that kind of stuff is is uh, is already in that in that book and in the time of Sandino. This is almost a hundred years ago. I think it's impossible to understand Nicaragua without understanding its past, and uh, and its most colorful past. Uh, goes back to something. Yeah, and from memory, the subtitle is Messiah of Truth and Light. Yeah, Messiah light, of and light and Truth. Yeah, the Light and Truth is the sect that 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 he uh, that he followed. But yeah, fascinating the way that he had his own basically religious departure or path he went on. But of course, as you mentioned in the, I think either in the book or somewhere, you mentioned that. The Sandin, the Sandinistas basically just ignored that very quickly. They just dropped dropped his religious inclinations uh, from their messaging. Okay. Otherwise, Marco is working on the Holtain Research Institute, which discusses federalism in Canada. It's truly important work up there. As you might know, I'm a Canadian citizen and have a great deal of sensitivity to the prairie region of the country. You should check out his website and they're doing even more topical commentaries, which are interesting too. So otherwise, Marco, thank you for your time. And I look forward to seeing the whole team Research Institute rise. We'll be in touch. Thanks very much, uh, Fergus. Always a pleasure as usual.